Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamall, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, recording from my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, Mike the Sound Guy is fine. Don't worry about that. I just didn't get a chance to have the outline finished in time for us to actually record in the studio. Uh, usually it takes me about a couple days to get everything done. Uh, so what I'll do is I work you know, Monday through Friday at the office, and then Friday night, Saturday, work on the outline so that Sunday we can record. Um, but Friday night, I was at a thing. My uh, girlfriend made me go to a baseball game for some optometry function as payback for all the times I made her go to my political stuff. Uh, and Saturday, I slept. I've just been grinding at the office trying to get stuff done, and I was just effing tired, man. Uh, but I'm here. So we got everything done. We're set to go. Mike's going to slice and dice the audio when we're finished, and uh, hopefully we'll still be out on time tomorrow morning. So it is now June. Holy shit. It's uh, The year is already halfway done, if you can believe that. So this is episode 68. As a podcast note, episode 67 was our patron-only special on Patreon. Uh, if you happen to be one of our patrons, go listen to that. I've checked the analytics on Patreon, which are not as cool as the ones at Blueberry, uh, but it looks like only 31 people have actually listened to that particular episode. So if you're one of our patrons, go check it out. I know there's more than 31 of y'all that have access to it. also want to give special thanks to this week's show note sponsor, Eric Robinson in Arizona. Uh, actually, I should have given him a shout out last month. Uh, but we had back-to-back-to-back to back to back weird episodes between just entirely too much stuff one week and then the What the Fisk during graduation week and then entirely too much stuff the week after that. But this is a back-to-normal podcast. We're going to have a little bit of politics, decent amount of criminal justice fuckery, and then a Law 140. That Law 140 will be talking about a kind of a high-level overview, if you will, of the law of negligence and particularly how fault gets assigned and how damages pan out. Uh, because there's one particular story out of Florida that a lot of people were commenting on. Uh, and some of the commentary is accurate in the sense that it's a fucked up story. But some people were reading a little too much into the details when it's really just plain math. So we're going to cover that in the back third of the episode. Until then, got about 37 stories, give or take, to cover. Uh, three of them happen to involve politics. But before I get into those, make sure if you haven't already to join the conversation online. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a written comment, we do read them. You can do that at Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our financial supporters, the people that help keep the lights on, pay Mike for slicing and dicing the videos and so on, you can do that via Patreon at patreon.com slash Fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Uh, we have a little bit of stuff there for people as kind of like rewards, if you will. Uh, we've got some bonus Law 140s. We've got some old uh, legal word of the day things that I need to bring back. I'm working on that one. And, of course, you can comment there also if you want to be part of the community. All right, so let's jump into some of the political bullshit. I've got three stories. I was going to talk more in depth about them, kind of like ranting-style fashion, because I truly, deeply despise our beloved papaya POTUS, Donald Trump. Uh, and the stories this week highlight that this guy is just such a fucking train wreck. Um, but we got three of them. So first is, well, I guess, really 
two of these are internationally related. Uh, one of these is fairly recent. The German ambassador, a guy named Richard Grinnell, uh, apparently is on record now talking to Breitbart, saying, yeah, sure, I'm content overthrowing foreign governments. Uh, from the story that he, he guess he gave the interview to Breitbart and other folks picked it up, but essentially what he says is, quote, there are a lot of conservatives throughout Europe who have contacted me to say they are feeling there is a resurgence going on. Uh, and then he says that he wants to, quote, empower other conservatives throughout Europe and other anti-establishment candidates. It's not the fucking job of the State Department to influence other countries' elections. If you want to change a foreign country's head of state, you just do it the CIA's way and overthrow the entire government. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't quote me on that. That's a joke. I mean, I recognize that sometimes deposing a government is a valid tool of statecraft. You know, we did it with Iraq. We did it with Afghanistan. Whether you think those were justified or not, that's part of international war slash diplomacy. But you don't do it through the State Department. You certainly don't do it to our allies. I mean, Germany has been one of the most steadfast allies we have in Europe ever since we kicked their ass in World War II. It's just insane to me that you have this politician troll appointed as an ambassador to a major country. And he's on record saying, yeah, you know, fuck it. You know, if we want to get rid of Angela Merkel, I'm going to help do that. Like, what? Who is this guy? So that's the first piece out of Europe. But in addition, uh, our tariffs, our trade wars, these things that are so easy to win, quote unquote, Trump has now announced that he's going to add additional tariffs to the European Union and Canada. Now, you'll remember not too long ago, we were supposed to be doing tariffs on China as part of this section of the tariff laws where you can invoke national security concerns to place tariffs on foreign countries. Well, that went nowhere because Trump announced it. Then China announced retaliatory tariffs. Then, and this is a separate story I don't have linked, one of their companies hired a Trump family member as a lobbyist. And then now magically Trump is back saying, no, no, we're good. We're on good terms. Uh, and then apparently there was just a, a talks over the weekend that went nowhere trying to back away from the ledge on the tariffs. Well, all of that China stuff aside... Peter Navarro, who is Trump's trade advisor, if you can call him that, he's a fucking idiot, said, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to add on these metal tariffs and they're going to greatly help American workers and et cetera, et cetera. And the part that fucking kills me is that this happened under George W. Bush. Now, in his case, he actually had a valid excuse because we had just gone through 9-11 and everything else. And he put in place the steel tariffs. And those got rolled back because they hurt the economy. They did not provide any benefit at all whatsoever. And this was not that long ago. You know, if I'm able to remember this happening, then it wasn't that long ago. You know what I mean? But they're now going to put additional tariffs on aluminum and steel imports from Canada, Mexico, and the European Union. Now, at a basic science, economics, econometrics, you know, empirical level, tariffs are stupid. The ideal tariff is going to be $0, 0%. I can walk you through the science on that. It's been talked about for literal centuries. You know, if you go back to Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, all the way up through uh, Henry Hazlitt, Economics in One Lesson, Paul Krugman, back before he became a nut under George W. Bush, the ideal tariff is zero. Because when you import goods, goods are imported not by the government, but by individual buyers. All right. So you buy stuff from China. It's 
brought into the country from like Walmart and then you go buy it. There is no great, you know, we talk about trade balances. These are not things that governments actually pass back and forth. They're individual transactions from individual producers and consumers in the marketplace. So when you buy something in dollars and Walmart imports something, whatever else, what happens is those dollars go overseas and you get the goods. Now, in cases like China, those dollars then just get stockpiled. They're essentially using it as a reserve. They're not actually doing anything with it, which means you're getting the benefit of the goods and you don't have to provide anything in return because all you've provided are these dollars that aren't getting used. They're essentially being removed from the monetary system. So at a basic level, tariffs are bad. Imports are fine. There's no harm with importing more than you export. But if you're going to have tariffs as bad as they are, it might make sense when you're doing it against competitors. I think we can agree that China is a competitor of the U.S., Russia is a competitor of the U.S., uh, but it makes no sense at all to do it with your allies. I mean, Jesus, we have the longest unprotected border in the entire fucking world with Canada because of the fact that they are our allies. They've been our allies since, what, the French-American War, the War of 1812, whatever it is, centuries. We have been close allies with Canada, and we're sitting here tacking on additional tariffs against them. It makes no sense. And what happens is that the end result is that Americans are poorer. You end up with less money because what happens is the stuff that you buy that has aluminum or steel in it suddenly costs more. Do you drink beer? How about soda? Those come in aluminum cans. Those prices are going to go up. Are you listening to this podcast on a smartphone or a computer? Guess what? Those have aluminum in them as well. So do flat screen TVs. So do your cars. The list goes on and on and on. All of those are going to cost more. So if you buy those, you're paying more than you would otherwise. But in addition, every other business that uses those has to raise their own prices to make up the difference as well. So, for example, let's assume my law firm is not that many people, but let's say I had thousands of lawyers, all of whom needed thousands of computers that my law firm paid for and thousands of smartphones that we paid for. As the prices for those goods went up, we would have to spend more money to provide them to our employees, which would mean I would have to increase the cost of the services we provide to clients. That's just how it works. So what's going to happen is these are going to be implemented we're going to go months down the line. Trump will probably, you know, protect his Republican majorities in Congress, maybe get reelected in 2020. But at some point between now and then, you're going to lose a shitload of jobs. Or at the very least, you won't create as many jobs as you would otherwise had these tariffs not been in place. That guy's a fucking idiot. All right. So last thing on Trump is that his attorney, I, I put that in air quotes, Jay Sekulow. We've talked before about this guy being a total fucking moron. Uh, him and one of the other Trump attorneys. I mean, Trump's had so many damn attorneys at this point, I can't keep track of all of them. Uh, but a pair of them sent a letter to uh, Bob Mueller as part of the Russia investigation months ago. Now, this just got leaked. Of course, the president's people claim that the Mueller investigation leaked it. There's no actual reason to believe that's true because most of the leaks thus far have come from the Trump camp themselves. And I wouldn't be surprised if this one did as well. Folks wanted me to go over this letter which essentially lays out the uh, authority of the executive branch to do essentially whatever it wants, the authority of the president to do whatever it wants. And I thought about it, but then I read it. And the letter is like laughably fucking bad. I mean, it's bad. So I'm going to give you the link to the full letter. It will be in the show notes, but I'm going to give you a couple examples. Take, for example, the footnotes 
All right, so let's say there's this particular paragraph. It says, quote, the investigation of Lieutenant General Flynn was being conducted by the FBI, which possesses only investigative authority, not adjudicative. It cannot conduct, subquote, proceedings within the cognizance of Section 1505. That's in the letter, and then it has a footnote to footnote 23. So you go, when you're sending letters like these, typically footnotes provide case law and other types of authority. Well, you go to footnote 23, and it says, exact quote, courts have explained it this way. That's it. No fucking link to any courts or anything else. Just courts have explained it this way. Uh, So then you go further down, and it says, quote, it is unthinkable that a president acting under his constitutional authority on the written recommendation and with the overt participation of his deputy attorney general and consistent with the advice of his attorney general to fire a subordinate who has been universally condemned by bipartisan leadership could then be accused of obstruction for doing so. And after the phrase bipartisan leadership, there's a footnote 48. So you go down to footnote 48 and there's nothing at all there. It's totally fucking blank. It's just a random blank ass footnote. Uh, They also have in there, quote, no president has ever faced charges of obstruction merely for exercising his constitutional authority. Well, no shit. No president has ever faced charges for anything because we've talked before. A sitting president can't be indicted. So that paragraph doesn't actually mean anything. But Bill Clinton was, in fact, impeached for obstruction of justice. He wasn't convicted, but he was impeached. Nixon resigned because he was going to be impeached for obstruction of justice. The notion that a president can't obstruct justice is silly. The issue is whether or not it can actually be a criminal offense as opposed to an impeachable offense. So the letter is trash. It is absolute trash. If you actually look at part of the actual letter, part of it is in Comic Sans, which is the font you use when you're just not to be taken seriously. And I've said this in a prior podcast, I am saddened that there are people in this country getting paid such exorbitant sums of taxpayer money to produce total dog shit work product. I could do better work for less money. If anyone in the Trump administration is hiring and wants an attorney to actually do a competent job, I will charge half of whatever the fuck you've been paying these clowns because I know you've been paying them a shitload of money and they're doing a piss poor job. Uh, So that covers the politics from the past week. I'm sure there's more, but frankly, there's been so much shit on a daily basis. I've given up trying to keep track of it all. Uh, So let's go over to some of the criminal justice fuckery. We've got three stories in the general research category. Uh, Harvard Law School has put together a study of over 500,000 defendants in the federal system. And what they found is that Republican judges are harder on black defendants and softer on women compared to Democrats. I'm going to give you the link to the full research paper, but from the summary at the beginning, it says, quote, this paper investigates whether judge political affiliation contributes to racial and gender disparities in sentencing using data on over 500,000 federal defendants linked to a sentencing judge. Exploiting random case assignment, we find that Republican appointed judges sentence black defendants to 3.0 more months than similar non-blacks and female defendants to 2.0 fewer months than similar males compared to Democratic appointed judges. 65% of the baseline racial sentence gap and 17% of the baseline gender sentence gap, respectively. These differences cannot be explained by other judge characteristics and grow substantially larger when judges are granted more discretion. It's a very long paper. It's very thorough. I will rely on data scientists to let me know if parts of it are wrong, but 
from the limited extent I understand, having looked at so many of these different types of studies, seems pretty fucking persuasive to me, and it's disturbing as hell. Uh, also, out of Harvard, there's a graduate student that is looking into this concept of technological due process, which I love. I think it is fantastic. Uh, so this is kind of like a, a, a news release of sorts in it. We're going to give you the link inside of it will be a link to the paper. Uh, but it says, quote, most of us are at least casually familiar with the idea of due process, but technological due process. Ask Priscilla Guo from the class of 2018, the graduating senior and special concentrator in technology, policy and society just wrapped up her thesis on machine learning algorithms in the criminal justice system. She learned that in 49 of the 50 states, predictive algorithms are used in bail, pretrial and sentencing hearings. In addition to focusing on the crime itself, these algorithms use characteristics like background, hometown, and family environment as predictive factors in rulings. Now, we've talked about all that before. None of that should be new to you. Uh, subquote, the judge receives it directly, and there's no opportunity for the defendant to say, hey, this is not a score that reflects who I am, says Guo. Subquote, even worse, there's no consistency. Each state has either developed their own algorithm or they've contracted out to a corporation, which means the defendant can't see what's in it because it's the company's proprietary software. Enter technological due process. Guo suggests that all defendants should receive notice that these algorithms are being used, should be informed of their own score, and should be able to challenge the data on either side of the equation. Subquote, the government should also be testing these algorithms to see if they're discriminating against people or if there's bias in the system, she says. They're not. Validity testing is done in less than 25% of cases. They do one test and say, oh, this algorithm works, which is not how algorithms work, especially in machine learning. I don't know who this person is. I love her to death already. So check out the link. I, that's, a, that's a phenomenal thing. Like I have never even, I haven't thought about that. Like I, I spend my time complaining about the algorithms because I just hate that we use them. Um, but this is actually a phenomenal idea requiring the data to be disclosed to the defense attorneys. Uh, out of ProPublica, there's a mini compilation of appellate cases involving bloodstain pattern analysis, which is a thing, even though it shouldn't be, it is total junk science, complete bullshit. Uh, back in 2009, the National Academy of the Sciences uh, did a comprehensive thing on forensic science in the country in general. Uh, and what they found is that certain stuff is just total, it's bogus. It's complete and total bullshit. Uh, so fingerprints are good. DNA is good. Um, bite mark analysis is bullshit. Light pattern spread analysis is bullshit. Bloodstain pattern analysis is bullshit. Uh, so what they've done is ProPublica has linked some of the key appellate cases and how they came about and what precedents they rely on from other jurisdictions in order to conclude that this is, in fact, accepted science. And it's it's actually got some ties to North Carolina because our state crime lab employed a guy named Dwayne Deaver, who was exposed as a categorical liar. Dude got fired in 2011 as part of an audit where they found that he lied his ass off about all kinds of stuff. Uh, he didn't turn over evidence to Greg Taylor, who was a guy who spent 19 years for in prison for a murder he didn't commit. Uh, Deaver committed perjury during a 2003 trial of Michael Peterson, who's a novelist here in Durham who killed his wife. And what you find is, and this is in the ProPublica thing, it says, quote, by the time these findings are public, which references Deaver lying his ass off, 
Judges in Tennessee and Texas will have already cited State v. Good, one of the cases Deaver testified in, in deciding to admit bloodstain pattern analysis as a reliable field. So basically, our reliance on precedent is good generally, but you have this this total bullshit junk science that has backdoored its way in because appellate cases here in North Carolina decided it was acceptable based on lies from an SBI agent that didn't get found out until later. And other appellate jurisdictions relied on North Carolina's appellate case law to justify letting this stuff into evidence. So we're giving you that link. You can go through it. Uh, in some of the state by state criminal justice fuckery out in California in Humboldt County, uh, a preliminary hearing has been set for former county corrections officer Corey Fisher. Uh, Fisher is from the story, quote, Fisher, who was in court wearing a jail-issued red jumpsuit, worked at the county jail for 11 years before he resigned in 2017 and moved to San Bernardino County. Fisher is charged with four felonies and five special allegations for the alleged sexual molestation of three boys, including forcible lewd acts on a child, oral copulation, and recurring sexual contact with a child younger than 14. Now, these are just part of the charges because while he was in jail on these charges, three more child victims came forward, which led to five more charges, including one felony count of forcible oral copulation on a person under the age of 14, three more misdemeanor counts of sexual battery, and one misdemeanor count of invasion of privacy. And in addition to that, a new civil lawsuit has been filed by three inmates from the jail that Fisher was in, alleging that he sexually assaulted each of them. So we will give you links to all of those. Uh, out of Oakland, a white church is divesting from police, as they call it, basically pledging not to call them again. From the story, it says, quote, standing on the front steps of First Congregational Church of Oakland late last month, Nicola Turbit, Torbit, excuse me, issued a declaration. So, quote, we can no longer tolerate the trauma inflicted on our communities by policing. Torbit, a white church volunteer, said in front of churchgoers who held photos of African-Americans shot dead by law enforcement. The church, she promised, would never call the cops again in nearly every circumstance. Dozens of members had agreed to do the same. Subquote, how do police help? They often don't, Torbett later said in an interview. So, especially as white people, why call them? As videos of the aftermath of white Americans dialing 911 on African Americans for taking part in innocent activities have repeatedly gone viral. You have the Starbucks thing, the yell door, all the stuff we talked about in our last episode that I called policing white space. Uh, members of this small church are taking extreme measures in response. They call it divesting from police. The church is a part of a tiny but growing movement among liberal houses of worship around the nation making similar vows. They include another church in Oakland, one in San Jose, and one in Iowa City, Iowa. So here's the thing. I guess this is okay. It's not my place to say how people should or should not protest. But I think it's bullshit. I think it lets police off the hook. Police should be called, but they should be compelled to protect and serve as their oath requires to do that properly without partiality or bias. By saying, oh, fuck it, we're not going to call police at all, I, I, I get the sentiment. I mean, I try not to call police myself, but it ducks the problem. You know, it's like when I rant and rave about how we've grown accustomed to letting Congress critters off the hook by letting them write shitty laws and then having the executive branch interpret it. We're doing the same thing with police because they've gotten so reckless with how they treat Americans, treat taxpayers, treat the folks who fund their entire livelihoods. We've now decided that the only way to minimize that negativity is to just not call them at all. That's, that's not the solution. 
the solution is to force them to do their fucking jobs without violating your rights. So we'll give you a link to that story. Now, believe it or not, that is it from California. California got off light this month. Uh, out of Colorado, we have this week's first appearance of the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. As an FBI agent dancing in a club managed to shoot a bystander. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, an FBI agent who busted moves in a downtown Denver bar may get busted himself. Denver's district attorney this week is expected to decide whether the city will prosecute the agent. He was off duty, but armed early Saturday when his gun fell as he did a backflip while dancing in front of a crowd, and he accidentally shot a man in the lower leg trying to pick it up, according to police reports. The wounded man was treated in the hospital and was expected to recover, according to Denver police. FBI officials on Sunday declined to discuss what happened just after midnight Saturday morning at Mile High Spirits, and they have not identified the agent. But he's been seen on a 32-second video obtained by the news, dancing in front of appreciative onlookers and performing the flip. Then a muzzle flashes as he grabs his fallen pistol. Now, what's funny, and I've talked before about how media is biased in favor of the police. The media has blurred this guy's face out, so you can't see who it is. If you find the original video, you can see it. But the media is going out of their way to help this guy out not be identified. Now, compare that to when you or me or any other person of color or any other, you know, anyone with a criminal record does something like that. You accidentally shoot your gun in a club, your mugshot's going to be on TV, your criminal record's going to be talked about, your name's going to be dropped, you're going to be in Google searches all over the fucking place. But when you look for law enforcement, it's one law for me, another law for thee. It's total bullshit. Uh, so I was out of Colorado. In the District of Columbia, more J-20 trials are getting dismissed because of Brady violations, prosecutors hiding evidence. Now, we've talked about these trials in three different episodes. In episode 39, uh, we talked about the government admitting they didn't have evidence for some of the charges. Episode 42 was when the uh, rioting charges got dismissed. And episode 46 was when the first batch of people getting tried, the jury found them all not guilty. Uh, from the latest bit of news, it says, quote, federal prosecutors on Wednesday dropped seven cases against people charged with rioting in Washington, D.C. during President Donald Trump's inauguration after getting in trouble in court for how they handled evidence provided by the right wing activist group Project Veritas. The announcement came after a judge concluded last week that the government wrongly withheld the full version of a video of a pre-protest planning meeting secretly recorded by a Project Veritas operative. The revelation of that video led to the discovery of other undisclosed Project Veritas videos, prompting defense lawyers to protest and a judge to find that prosecutors committed a serious violation. So basically, there was one snippet of one video that the prosecution was using found out that was actually part of a longer video. And further on, they found out that there were, in fact, 69 different files. 66 of those were videos, and three of them were audio only. So the DAs were withholding all of this stuff when they shouldn't have been. So in all likelihood, a good chunk of these things are going to get dismissed. That's out of D.C. and Florida. We've got a lot of stories from Florida this week. Uh, we'll start in Miami. So we've talked before about racial disparities in marijuana prosecution. 
The Miami Beach police kind of proved that over the past weekend. Uh, It says, quote, Miami Beach police arrested 40 people, most of them African-American, this past weekend for misdemeanor drug charges, primarily for small amounts of marijuana. There were a total of 130 arrests for all crimes. That number far exceeded the 27 people whom the city of Miami police took into custody in three days during Ultra 2018. Uh, Ultra 2018, it's a music festival for like electronic dance music. Um, In addition, MBPD arrested only 14 people for pot during the Miami Music Week this year. Subquote, minorities are the favorite target when it comes to drug enforcement, says Karen Goldstein, the deputy director of Florida's National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Normal. Uh, That's no question. Beach cops made all those pot arrests during Urban Beach Week. Despite a 2015 ordinance, they gave officers the option of issuing citations in lieu of arresting anyone caught with less than 20 grams of marijuana. After the order was passed by the city council in a 5-0 to zero vote, it was touted by activists and politicians, including former Miami Beach Mayor Philip Levine, as a step toward legalization. So comparing Urban Beach Week to the Ultra Music Festival, you know, you look at Ultra, they actually have what were called amnesty boxes, spots where you could turn in your drugs with no arrest or anything else. Um, and you compare that, there were no amnesty boxes at this thing. You had the trash can, and that was it. So th- this is just part of a pattern and practice of targeting people of color in this particular community. So we'll give you a link to the story. There's a lot more to it. Like it goes super in depth, but I'm only giving you the summary. Uh, out of Orange City, Florida, a deputy has been arrested because he demanded a woman send him nude pictures. And if she didn't, he said he was going to kill her. From that story, it says, quote, an Orange City police officer was arrested on a warrant after Georgia authorities said he attempted to extort nude photos from a woman on social media, threatening to kill and rape her family if she did not comply. Joshua David Fancher, 25, was arrested Tuesday at his home in DeLand, DeLand, I don't know how they pronounce it, uh, on a warrant charging him with making terroristic threats, according to officials with the Volusia County Sheriff's Office. Detectives in Loudoun County, Georgia, said Fancher first started messaging the victim on Instagram, demanding she send him nude photos. Fancher threatened to kill her, kill her five-year-old brother, and rape her sister if she didn't send him the photos. The threatening messages continued for five months, according to the arrest warrant. Lock his ass up. Uh, Out of Orlando, We've got several stories this week that I'm calling Policing White Space Volume 2 because this shit just keeps going. Uh, From that story, it says, quote, an Osceola County resort is apologizing after a white woman was caught on video screaming the N-word at a black family. On May 27th, a Facebook user named Covey Banks posted a video she says was taken the previous day at Omni Orlando Resort. Uh, I'll give you a link to the video, but basically these folks were in the pool. A white family was, was in the pool. And the family's daughter said she had to go to the bathroom. And the mom, I guess, was being lazy and just kept telling the daughter to pee in the pool. And the black family was like, look, there's a bathroom right over there. And the white people just fucking lost it. Started calling them the N-word, calling them bitches, a whole bunch of other stuff. And, of course, this is all on video. Uh, Story continues, quote, in a statement to the Orlando Sentinel, Omni Hotels and Resorts President Peter Strabell said he had personally apologized to Banks, who, turns out, is a doctor. Uh, It says, quote, an incident occurred at our Orlando resort last weekend. Two families staying with us got into a dispute and one family used racial slurs. The use of such language is completely unacceptable and it will not be tolerated at our hotels and resorts. We are sorry this horrible event occurred at one of our properties and I have personally apologized to Dr. Banks. And of course, the police showed up because of the disturbance and didn't actually do anything. Uh, Also out of Orlando, 
We have a pedophile cop, uh, well, a deputy in this case, a corrections officer with the, was it Orange County? I don't know what the county is. It's the county sheriff's department. Uh, was arrested on suspicion of raping a girl at the Juvenile Assessment and Detention Center in Orlando. Uh, Marcus Leon James, 26, was arrested Monday on charges of sexual battery by a custodian on a victim younger than 12 and sexual misconduct by a corrections officer. According to the arrest affidavit, the girl said she and another inmate were cleaning several areas Sunday night when James told her to go into an office. The girl said James sexually attacked her and told her if she let anyone know about the incident, she would, subquote, never see the daylight again. The girl said James bought her a McDouble hamburger from McDonald's after the attack. I'll give you a link to that story out of Palm Beach County. The prosecution of former police officer... Uh, Newman Raja, he's the guy that killed Corey Jones back in 2015, claims that Jones came out of his car with a gun pointing at him, and then it turned out that his body cam actually showed that he was lying. He completely fabricated the entire fucking thing. Uh, Well, they ended up prosecuting him for murder, and as part of that, in Florida's stand-your-ground law, you have the chance to present to a judge evidence that you feared for your life, standing your ground, etc., etc., and if the judge agrees, the charges get dismissed. Well, the judge in this particular case heard this uh, testimony from the officer and just issued a ruling saying that it was basically all bullshit, like the guy is not being truthful and that she was denying his request to have the charges dismissed. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Palm Beach County Circuit Judge Samantha Schausberg Fewer said she doesn't believe Raja's story that he feared for his life because Jones pulled a gun on him after Raja announced he was a cop. In her 27-page ruling, the judge concluded Raja, subquote, acted unreasonably, and she kept the case on track for a trial where Raja would be free to make the same stand-your-ground argument to a jury. Strasburg Fewer wrote that she based her decision on two days of hearings last month that were like a mini-trial without a jury. So, of course, the officer himself didn't testify because whatever he says could be used at the civil trial, but instead his, uh, his attorneys presented the video, the body cam video, Uh, him talking to investigators, and a whole bunch of other shit. Uh, So the story continues, quote, The judge wrote that based on the recordings, she does not believe Raja's repeated claims to investigators that he identified himself as a cop when he approached Jones. Raja told investigators that Jones hopped out of his SUV and immediately aimed a gun at him, but the judge found his, subquote, unreliable testimony is all that supports that proposition. Schausberg Fewer also wrote that it's clear from the roadside assistance call there's no evidence that Raja ever said, police, can I help you, as he insisted. Basically, Jones was on the side of the road in a disabled car, called 911, and you had the 911 call record him getting shot to death. Uh, The judge continues, the court finds and common sense dictates the evidence shows the defendant had his gun drawn when he jumped out of the car and approached Jones. It was upon seeing the defendant in plain clothes with no indication, understanding or knowledge the defendant was a police officer pointing a gun at him that it was then and only then that Judge Jones pulled out his gun in response. So we'll see how that trial goes. They're going to appeal the denial of the stand your ground stuff. So this case is going to be on hold for years as the appeal goes forward. Uh, And then we'll see what happens when it actually gets back to trial time. Out of St. Lucie County, this is the case that is going to be the basis for our Law 140 this week. A jury awarded a family four cents as part of their use of force lawsuit against police for killing Gregory Hill. Uh, So I'm going to give you the fact background I don't know if I should do it now or just wait until... You know what? Let's do this. I'm going to wait until the Law 140. But just know, this is the case we're going to come back to. 
Uh, so that'll be out of Florida. In Georgia, in Athens, Clark County, you have the first rule of Fisk again. Uh, Officer Taylor Salters has been fired after a social media post showed him running over an unarmed black man with his patrol car. From the story, it says, quote, The athens Clark County Police Department has fired one of its officers in the wake of a suspect being injured during a foot pursuit and arrest. Earlier on Saturday, the department said the officer was on administrative leave. A Facebook post by the department said it was related to an incident, and I'm putting that in quotes, uh, that occurred Friday afternoon. The post mentioned the department being, subquote, aware of a Facebook post regarding the, subquote, incident. Uh, There have been some concerns brought to us by the community over the actions of our officers during this incident, the police post said. After reviewing the officer's body camera footage and all the other facts and circumstances of this case, Chief Scott Freeman terminated the employment of Officer Taylor Salters, a press release on Saturday evening stated. So you look over the, the details. Basically, this guy tried to run the guy over twice. The first time he misses jumps the curb, hits a stop sign, flattens the driver's side tire, then backs up and actually successfully runs over him again because I guess they pulled the guy over, he had an outstanding warrant and fled on foot and the officer was either too fat, lazy or whatever to chase him and decided to chase him with the car and actually run him over. Uh, So that was out of Georgia. In Hawaii, and I'm assuming this is Waipahu, I apologize for my Hawaiian listeners if I don't pronounce that right, Uh, from the story it says, quote, Hawaii News Now has learned that the city of Waipahu has paid $650,000 to the family of a mentally ill man who was killed by police in 2013. Taser camera video obtained from Honolulu police shows one officer tasing 43-year-old Victor Rivera while another officer shoots at him 14 times. Nine rounds hit Rivera, killing him. Subquote, I've seen a lot of bad stuff, but it's like they were shooting a dog, said Michael Green, attorney for Rivera's family. The first shot goes off, not even a full second after they tase the guy, and they don't stop shooting. And I'll give you a link to the video. It's, it's pretty disturbing stuff, but yeah. So if you're a taxpayer in Hawaii, you're now $650,000 poorer to settle this abusive force lawsuit. Uh, in Idaho, in Elmore County, we don't really know the full details on what's going on with this one yet. Uh, we do know deputies shot and killed a man who was armed with a knife after a car chase. Uh, from the story says, quote, a man was shot and killed in Elmore County Friday morning after police say he led deputies on a chase and threatened them with a knife. The incident started at 849 in the morning when a resident called the Elmore County Sheriff's Office to report that a person in a white pickup was driving recklessly through his property. Deputies responded and found the pickup and attempted to pull it over. Instead, officials say the driver sped away, leading the deputies on a chase. Uh, Chase eventually ends because the guy crashed. And the story continues, quote, Deputies say he brandished a very large military-style knife, which Sheriff Hollinshead said is deadly force. The man threatened the deputies, and one of the deputies fired his gun, shooting the victim four times and killing him. The suspect died at the scene. His name has not yet been released. I dispute that brandishing a knife is deadly force, by the way. If you're not actually making a threat to go after somebody, you know, if someone's 100 feet from me brandishing a knife, I can't shoot them. There's no reasonable apprehension that I'm actually going to get stabbed from 100 feet away. But, you know, that's how it goes. That's in Idaho. In Iowa, in Burlington, uh, I'm going to give you, the, I'm just going to give you the, the text of the story because the media really does go out of their way to try and help police in the framing of how this stuff happens. Listen to this opening paragraph. Confidential police video fails to corroborate 
a police officer's account that he was bitten by a dog before firing shots in 2015 that accidentally killed a Burlington, Iowa mother, according to an attorney Thursday at a federal court hearing. The dog bite is one of the big reasons that Burlington police officer Jesse Hill cited to justify firing the shots that killed 34-year-old Autumn Steele in January 2015. Hill was responding to a domestic disturbance at the home Steele shared with her husband, Gabriel. A 12-second clip of the video from Hill's body camera that authorities released shows he fired his gun twice without warning after a growling dog is heard, fatally wounding Autumn Steele in front of her toddler. Authorities contend that a German shepherd jumped on Hill's back and bit his thigh, causing injuries that required treatment. Now, I don't fully understand that how a dog would jump on your back and bite your thigh. Is your thigh, does that include the back of the leg too? I don't know. I've always thought of the thigh as like the front of the leg, but I, I guess I could be wrong. Anyhow, long story short, the shooting was ruled justified because of this supposed dog attack, according to the prosecutor. Then there's this separate legal battle going on where the media has sued the Department of Public Safety trying to get the full video instead of just this weird 12-second clip. Uh, the story picks up from there. It says, quote, The video was not played in open court Thursday, but Chief Judge James Gritzner of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Iowa allowed attorneys in the case to describe pieces of the unreleased footage. Not only does the unreleased video show no bite, according to the attorney for the plaintiff in the case, but Hill never says that he had been bitten, which is a direct contrast to what he wrote later in his report. O'Brien, who's the attorney representing the family, additionally said the video shows that Hill's lapel camera was pointing at the sky when Hill fired because he had slipped on ice, ultimately losing his gun in the snow. Uh, so that's a bizarre case. But what kills me is the opening paragraph. The, the video fails to corroborate a police officer's story. What that means is that the officer lied. When video fails to corroborate, it means that someone somewhere is bullshitting. So that was in Iowa. In Kansas, we have another appearance of the first rule of Fisk in Overland Park, uh, where an officer shot and killed a suicidal teenager, claiming that the teen was using his van as a deadly weapon. And then the dash cam video was released, and you realize that it was all bullshit. From the story, it says, quote, The Overland Park police officer who fired into a minivan as it backed down a driveway was facing subquote deadly force when he killed the suicidal teen, the officer and the city said in a reply to a lawsuit. The mother of the slain driver, 17-year-old John Albers, sued the city and officer Clayton Jennison in federal court last month, saying the officer was never in danger before he fired 13 shots into the minivan on January 20th. The city and the officer filed a response Friday, denying they violated Albert's constitutional rights by using lethal force. Subquote, Jennison had probable cause to use deadly force given his knowledge that Albers was reported as suicidal, was operating a van, and posed a danger to defendant Jennison and the public while recklessly operating that van. So that's the reply, or the answer, I guess technically would be a more appropriate legal description, the answer to the lawsuit. But then you look at the dash cam, and the kid is slowly backing the van out of the driveway like you or I would, maybe two miles an hour, give or take. The officer comes up to the van. As the van continues backing up, he steps to the side with plenty of time. There's no way the van was going to hit him. Fires one shot into the van. The van starts to turn out of the driveway, fires another shot, and then fires 11 more shots for 13 in all. Just completely empties his fucking magazine into this kid who's already suicidal, and he basically said, fuck it, challenge, accepted, and blew him away anyway. So that's out of Kansas. In Louisiana. Now, Louisiana normally 
floor to ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice. Uh, but this one is not a criminal justice story. This is just yet another highlight of the depravity of some people in the country. Uh, in Leesville, the story says, quote, a pickup truck hit and killed a 31-year-old black man who was being a good Samaritan as he tried to remove dangerous debris from a roadway in a community south of here. His name was Rail Lewis of Leesville. Tuesday, the day of the accident, was his birthday. Matthew Martin, 18, was the driver of the 2003 Chevy truck that hit Lewis on US-171 north of Pickering, according to Louisiana State Police. After the collision, Martin posted a social media video of his dented truck using several laughing emojis and the caption, so quote, y'all, I just hit a whole guy on the highway. When asked what Martin hit in a Snapchat conversation, he responded, some N-word, and he actually spelled out the N-word there. A uh, friend replied, how did the Chevy take it? Martin said, fucked it up pretty good, LOL. Friend said, it'll buff out. Did the guy die on impact or what? And Martin said, no, he died on the way to the hospital. In a Facebook post, Vernon Parish Sheriff Sam Kraft said he was appalled by the posts, which contain a racial slur and show a shockingly cavalier attitude about the fatality. But such subquote morally and socially unacceptable language does not constitute a crime. Lewis was pronounced dead at Bird Regional Hospital in Leesville. Martin was not injured and has not been charged. Now, using foul language might not be a crime, but running someone over is. We call that misdemeanor death by motor vehicle. So I'm sure there's more of an investigation. I'm fairly certain there aren't going to be charges, but the notion that you can't charge a guy is stupid. Uh, out of Massachusetts, so Politico magazine has an in-depth profile on the newfound compassion in the war on drugs because the addicts happen to be white. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, She watched her sister dying, slumped over her kitchen table, unconscious and gasping. When the police and paramedics came, they turned her sister onto the floor and sprayed naloxone up her nose. Once, then a second dose. The anti-opiate did its work in minutes. Her sister woke up. Three days later, she opened the door to the police again. And I, I should have put down the name of the lady they're interviewing. I completely missed that part. Uh, Derek Back, a police officer in plain clothes, and Tiffany Duggan, an addiction recovery coach, hadn't come with an arrest warrant, but a potential lifeline, a bed in a drug treatment facility. In 2015, police in towns across eastern Massachusetts began to embrace a new way to respond to a public health crisis with a rapidly escalating death toll. That spring, the exasperated police chief in the fishing town of Gloucester, Massachusetts, announced that anyone who showed up at the police station and asked for help overcoming an opiate addiction would get it, without fear of arrest, no matter where they lived or whether they had insurance. Police, he said, would get them into treatment. In the Gloucester program's first year, 376 people took the chief up on his offer. The New England Journal of Medicine took notice. Almost 95% of addicts got a direct referral to treatment, compared to a 63% referral rate for a treatment placement program at Boston Medical Center. Now, here's the thing. This is how it should be done. I am glad that this program is happening. There should be more like it. People who are addicted to drugs should get treatment instead of going to jail. But you'll notice we still don't do this for crack or cocaine addiction, even though if you go back to episode 42, I gave you that study that showed the death rates from opiates and cocaine are actually still comparable. There's a lot of media focus on the opiate addicts, but in terms of the number of people dying, it's basically the same. 
But because people on cocaine tend to be black and people on opiates tend to be white, you have all of this great public response to protect the white folks. We should be doing this for people addicted to all sorts of drugs, not just the politically favored classes. Uh, out of Missouri in St. Louis, turns out driving while black is real. Y'all know this already because we've talked about it before in other states. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, nearly four years after protests in Ferguson raised concerns about racial profiling of blacks in Missouri, a report from the state attorney general shows that African-American drivers are 85 percent more likely to be pulled over than similarly situated whites. The highest percentage in the 18 years the state has compiled data. Attorney General Josh Hawley on Friday released his office's annual vehicle stops report. The disparity index comparing traffic stops among races showed a jump from last year when blacks were 75% more likely than whites to be stopped. Up until now, last year's percentage had been the highest since the reports began in 2000. Now, this is common almost everywhere. You know, if you go to opendatapolicing.com, a website I've talked about before, opendatapolicing.com, you have tens of thousands of traffic stops from North Carolina, Maryland, and Illinois over the span of 10 years. It's a shitload of raw data. And what you'll find is that there are racial disparities almost everywhere. It's one of the things that opened my eyes to racial profiling. You know, I used to be a very dyed-in-the-wool conservative. I thought driving while black wasn't a thing. You know, if you didn't want to get pulled over driving while black, don't break the fucking law. You know, that was my view when I was younger. And then I saw this just raw fucking data where you have in Durham, for example, a disproportionate number of minorities pulled over during the day when you can actually see that the driver is black, but that disparity goes away at night when you can't, you know, I realize that whatever the reason, whether it's, you know, overt racism or implicit bias or whatever it is, police all over the country deliberately target people of color for traffic stops. The data is out there. So now Missouri, as part of this new report from the attorney general, is in that group explicitly as well. Uh, in New Hampshire, out of Exeter, we have a case where the police arrested a guy because he hurt their feelings on Facebook. From the story, it says, quote, On May 23rd, a police officer arrested Robert W. Freeze in Exeter, New Hampshire, and took him to the station for booking. Freeze is no stranger to law enforcement. In the past, he has been convicted of fraud, criminal trespassing, and a hit and run. His vehicle was easy to track because of its notable vanity plate, Trump won. But this latest arrest, Freeze learned, had nothing to do with those earlier mishaps. Instead, he had been apprehended for insulting a police officer on the internet. The facts of the case, laid out by the Seacoast Online and the criminal complaint against Freeze, are straightforward. On May 3rd, Freeze wrote a comment on a Seacoast Online article on Facebook about recently retiring police officer Dan D'Amato. He believed that D'Amato had treated him unfairly and harshly criticized his alleged misconduct. He then tore into Exeter Police Chief William Shoup, declaring that subquote, Chief Shoup covered up for this dirty cop. Although the outlet removed the comment, the police charged Freeze with criminal defamation of character, a Class B misdemeanor. Their complaint alleges that he, subquote, purposely communicated on a public website in writing information which he knows to be false and knows will tend to expose another person to public contempt by posting that Chief Shoup covered up for a dirty cop. Freeze's arrest was quite unusual. Class B misdemeanors may result in fines, but not jail time. And officers do not typically detain a suspect whose alleged crime may not be punished with a deprivation of liberty. Here's going to be news for the people in Exeter, New Hampshire. 
that particular comment can't be punished at all. What's going to happen is that these charges are going to get dismissed. This guy's going to file a lawsuit and he's going to win because that was classic First Amendment protected speech. There was no statement of fact. It was a statement of opinion. Saying that he covered up for someone is a statement of opinion. It's not a fact-based statement that could be subject to a defamation claim. And in addition, not only is it an opinion, but it's an opinion about a public official. We have a God-given right embodied in the First Amendment to complain about our public officials all we fucking want. So if you happen to be a taxpayer in Exeter, New Hampshire, hold on to your pocketbook because you're about to lose a bundle of money because in addition to being snowflakes, your police don't understand the law. Uh, so that's in New Hampshire, out of New Jersey. So this is a crazy situation where I had one story that was sent to me and then I clicked through that and found a second story and then found information in the story that then led me to a third story where the gist of it is you have four different police officers who have been arrested in Patterson, New Jersey for completely different things. Uh, so I'm going to give you snippets from each of the stories, but I'm going to kind of run through them in a train. So this is all in Patterson from the first story. It says, quote, Roger then who joined the Patterson police department almost two years ago, became the fourth police officer to be charged with corruption in less than two months on Wednesday morning for allegedly assaulting a man and filing a misleading police report. According to us attorney, Craig Carpenito, then 29 is charged with a conspiracy to deprive a person of civil rights and misprision of felony. Both charges stem from an early March incident in St. Joseph Regional Medical Center, where basically this guy beat a suicidal man in a hospital on video and is smiling into the camera. At one point, he actually points the camera directly at his face so he could smile into it as they're beating the shit out of this guy. So that story linked to a second story uh, that is about a different officer involved in the same beating, but then in addition was already under indictment for being a drug dealer. From the second story, it says, quote, Reuben McCausland, the Patterson police officer accused by the FBI of dealing drugs, was also involved in the alleged hospital assault on a suicidal patient that resulted in the arrest of another city cop. A Patterson police report on the hospital attack indicates that McCausland is the Patterson cop whom federal authorities identified as police officer number one in announcing the arrest of officer Roger. Then the criminal complaint filed by the FBI says police officer number one punched the victim in the face while the victim was in a wheelchair at St. Joseph's regional medical center. The complaint said officer one later put on hospital gloves and struck the victim two additional times in the face, causing an injury while the victim was on a bed in the hospital emergency room. So those are the first two stories, but you'll remember the first story said that there were four officers that had been charged. So I went searching for a story on the other two and found out that you had two officers under federal indictment for conducting unlawful searches. From the third story, it says, quote, the FBI arrested two city police officers on Wednesday morning on charges of illegal motor vehicle stop and extortion, according to federal authorities. Jonathan Bastios, 28, and Yudi Ramos, 31, both Patterson residents, are accused of conspiring to deprive individuals of their civil rights under color of law. Additionally, authorities alleged Bastios committed extortion under color of official right by accepting a firearm in exchange for reducing charges on an arrestee. 
Authorities uncovered instances in which Bastios and Ramos stopped motor vehicles, detained people, conducted car searches, all without justification. In some instances, both men took cash and other items without justification before releasing the detainees, authorities said. So moral of the story, if you live in Patterson, uh, good luck dealing with the police department there because they're corrupt as fuck. Uh, out of New York and NYC, we have Policing White Space Volume 2, where a real estate agent basically just goes off on this lengthy racial epithet tirade uh, because he was basically kicked out of a nightclub. So I've got a clip. I, the clip summarizes the text that I was going to repeat back to you anyway. Uh, just forewarn you, this is not something you want your kids to hear. So if you need to mute it, mute it now. Here's this real estate agent in Brooklyn. Why you touch me again, you fucking nigger. Touch oh, me again. That's it. Touch me that's again, it. He said it. He said it. He said it. Yeah, I said it. Yeah, I said it. He's punching me, you fucking spick. Yeah, I said it. Get somebody here, otherwise I'm going to kill somebody. Now, you heard at the end of that clip, get somebody here or I'm going to fucking kill somebody. The entire time, this guy is spazzing out on uh, on video. And the whole video is like five minutes long. I'll give you the link if you want to watch the rest of it. But he's on the phone with the cops. He gets kicked out of the club and calls the police and then claims that he's being you know punched, even though in the video no one's actually touching him. And I, I would have decked the fucking guy. Like, the bouncer showed immense restraint. Because aside from the words, which obviously would have a greater impact on someone than me as a white guy, having a guy in my face yelling at me, I, I would have knocked his fucking teeth out. Like there's a level of restraint there that is truly, truly impressive. Uh, so it turns out this guy's like a hipster real estate agent working for some company called MySpace New York, not the website company. It's like a real estate company. Uh, and then when they interviewed him, he said that he's, and I fucking love this because everyone says this, uh, he claims he's not a racist and his use of those words were only because other people were already using those words, which you don't actually hear in the video either. So it's just some comical shit. Uh, that's in New York, out of Pennsylvania, in Spring Grove. We're still trying to figure out what's going on here, but basically a handcuffed man in a patrol car was shot by police for running his mouth. That seems to be the current state of things. From the story, it says, quote, police remain tight-lipped Thursday, May 31st, about an officer-involved shooting in Spring Grove a day earlier. A witness said a handcuffed man was shot while sitting in the back of a police cruiser Wednesday at the Santander Bank branch in the borough. The Pennsylvania State Police issued a news release Wednesday night stating the local troops' major case team was dispatched to an officer-involved shooting at the location. Amanda Cozio, who works as a cleaner at the bank, said she saw a man wearing a red bandana being brought out from the building in handcuffs. She said he was arguing with police while seated in the back of a police car when he was shot. So we'll see what happens there. That's in Spring Grove, Pennsylvania. Out of Tennessee, we've got two stories that I guess could theoretically be described as good news. One is definitely good news. The other one is good-ish news. Uh, so the good-ish news in Dixon County, a cop killer has been arrested alive. From the story, it says, quote, after a nearly 48-hour manhunt that spanned the state and involved more than a dozen law enforcement agencies, the suspect in this week's killing of a Middle Tennessee sheriff's deputy was captured Friday, less than two miles from where the search began. Stephen Wiggins, covered in mud and wearing torn jeans, surrendered to authorities without a fight on a remote roadside near the edge of woods in Hickman County. He was charged with first-degree murder and is being held without bond. 
Wiggins is accused of killing 32-year-old Dixon County Sheriff's Officer Sergeant Daniel Baker, a former military man with a wife and young daughter, after the officer responded to a suspicious vehicle call Wednesday morning uh, near a pair of roads in Dixon. Now, you'll be shocked to know that Wiggins, the guy who was arrested, alive, uh, is white. In Memphis, we have Policing White Space Volume 2. This is like the third entry on this podcast, but this one is actually good news. Um, A white neighbor called police on a black real estate agent, and the police actually defended the agent's right to be there and do his fucking job. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, in a video posted to YouTube, Michael Hayes, a real estate investor in Memphis, Tennessee, went to a house that was in desperate need of a fixing up to inspect it. It was at that point, he said, that a woman came out of a neighboring house demanding to know what he was doing. Hayes said that he readily showed the woman his investment contract, which showed that he had permission to work on the house, as well as the written permission he received from the homeowner. Still, the unidentified woman wouldn't be swayed and called the police anyway. Thankfully, in this case, the police were quick to call the woman out on her bullshit and defended Hayes' right to be there. Uh, Subquote, you keep the camera rolling. If you have any problems with her, what I want you to do is call me back over here. A white male officer reassures Hayes she will go to jail for that. The woman says something that sounds like I'm friends with the sheriff, but the same officer shuts her down. I don't care if you're friends with the president, he snaps. You're going to let him do what he's going to do. If you try to do anything to stop him, I'm going to take you to jail. And it goes on from there. So good to know that that guy didn't get arrested or shot. Uh, In Virginia, out of Charlottesville, this is not a police story. This is a, Jesus Christ, some of the stuff that the president has been normalizing now. A self-avowed pedophile and white supremacist, a guy actually admits to these things, is running for Congress. There is a lengthy, lengthy, long, disturbing, disgusting Huffington Post story exposing all of his bullshit. So I'm going to give you a link to it, uh, but I'm going to give you some snippets to start out. It says, quote, Nathan Larson, a 37-year-old accountant from Charlottesville, Virginia, is running for Congress as an independent candidate in his native state. He is also a pedophile, as he admitted to Huffington Post on Thursday, who has bragged in website posts about raping his late ex-wife. According to Larson's campaign manifesto, his platform as a subquote quasi neo reactionary libertarian candidate includes protecting gun ownership rights, establishing free trade, and protecting benevolent white supremacy, as well as legalizing incestuous marriage and child pornography. Now, this guy ran in 2017 for the state legislature as well. So basically, all of this crazy shit that has been normalized by having our papaya POTUS in office is trickling down to the state level candidates. It's fucking disturbing. Uh, Out of Chesterfield, Virginia, taxpayers are now six and a half million dollars poorer because police tased a guy until he was on fire. From the story, it says, quote, a $95 million lawsuit filed by a man who was shot with a taser after crashing during a 2015 police pursuit and who suffered disfiguring burns when the weapon ignited his gasoline-soaked clothes has been settled for $6.5 million, Chesterfield County authorities confirmed Thursday. The excessive force lawsuit filed last year by Miles Zachary Cole November, who suffered burns to more than 86% of his body and underwent 34 surgeries after the incident, was dismissed in U.S. District Court in Richmond after all parties agreed to settle the matter according to court documents. Basically, this guy was drunk. 
led police on a high-speed chase that reached 120 miles an hour at some point, flipped his car six times. It eventually landed on its roof. He was pulled out. Apparently, he was belligerent, and they just decided to tase his ass because they didn't want to deal with him anymore. Well, the taser set him on fire. And it turns out the department had a habit of tasing people without even trying to deal with them with any less than, uh, you know, any lesser force. And in addition to that, the officer who shot the taser in that particular case had already killed someone else in a different case and was later fired because he was involved in a gang. So it's a ridiculous ass story. So I, I guess it's bad. The guy's got to deal with the disfigurement, but basically he brought this on himself and now he's going to get paid six and a half million dollars of taxpayer money because of it, because the police don't know how to fucking control themselves. So that's in Chesterfield. So that is actually all of the state by state criminal justice fuckery. Every now and again, we cover stuff in former countries. This time we have three of those stories uh, out of Australia and Victoria. Uh, police have basically completely fabricated over a quarter million DUI breath tests. From the story, it says, quote, Victorian police faked more than a quarter of a million roadside breath tests in what appears to be a deliberate ruse to dupe the system. An internal investigation has found 258,000 alcohol breath tests were falsified over five and a half years. Police believe officers may have been blowing into the breathalyzers themselves most likely due to laziness and the need to meet targets. Basically what happened was that there was an audit done of the data because someone leaked to the press that there was going to be a potential issue. Officers looked into it and then they decided to conduct an audit when the leak turned out to be legit. And what they found is that there's a boatload of these tests that were happening too close together. So the idea is that if you pull someone over for a DUI, you use what's called a PBT, a portable breath test. You use this box to do the breath test. And then there's going to be some period of time where there's nothing going on because you have to go find another car to pull over. And what they were finding is that the tests were too close together. They were being conducted back to back, which is why they think the officers were actually blowing into the breathalyzers themselves. Uh, so that's crazy, crazy shit out of Australia. In the United Kingdom, in England, uh, so cosmetics chain Lush did a very limited campaign uh, pointing out that police have been infiltrating groups by seducing women, having kids with them and everything else. And they did this advertising campaign called hashtag spy cops uh, and then had posters that said police were paid to lie. It was very edgy. Like it was, it's definitely highlighting police corruption, but of course people lost their fucking minds and now Lush has backed off. From the story, it says, quote, cosmetics chain Lush has removed its controversial campaign posters from some shops after it claimed to have been facing intimidation from police officers. The company caused outrage recently after launching the hashtag spy cops campaign, which saw posters placed in shop windows featuring police officers and the words paid to lie, along with fake police tape emblazoned with the words police have crossed a line. However, some shops have removed the posters from their windows, allegedly due to intimidation from officers. The campaign has been described by Lush as an attempt to raise awareness of the subquote ongoing undercover policing scandal where officers have infiltrated the lives, homes, and beds of activists. Undercover police operations have faced criticism in recent years after revelations that some undercover officers have engaged in romantic relationships and even fathered children with protesters who belonged to groups they were trying to infiltrate. 
In a statement, the company said, subquote, whilst intimidation of our shop staff from police officers and unhelpful tweets from those in high office are ongoing, not all of our shops feel able today to have the campaign window in their shops. However, the campaign is still running for three weeks, and we will be constantly weighing up what to do about the situation. Uh, Home Secretary Sajid Javid was one of those critical of the campaign, tweeting, quote, never thought I would see a mainstream British retailer running a public advertising campaign against our hardworking police. This is not a responsible way to make a point. Lush's York store reportedly removed the posters from its windows yesterday after staff said they were not comfortable with the campaign. This is crazy to me. You have well-documented police misconduct. And you can't have a business talking about it because people lose their shit. It blows my fucking mind. Like, we, we've totally lost the script on how policing is supposed to work, how government employees are supposed to work. You know, can you imagine if, like, DMV employees, you know, they were in some kind of scandal and someone mentioned this and the DMV people, everyone just lost their mind about our hardworking DMV employees? Like, What? It's insane to me. Uh, so last one is out of India. So I normally do the countries alphabetically, which means the United Kingdom is almost always last. But I wanted to add, uh, end rather, on some good news. So this is out of India in Uttarakhand. I, I'm totally fucking up how you pronounce that. Uh, but basically, this is, a, this is a video that went viral where a Muslim boy is dating a Hindu girl and they meet at a temple and people spaz the fuck out. And a mob basically descends on the boy and is trying to kill him. And a Sikh police officer showed up and basically protects the guy by using himself as a human shield. Uh, so from the story, it says, quote, a Sikh police officer has been hailed a hero after a video emerged of him protecting a Muslim youth from a rampaging mob. Gagandeep Singh humbly stated he was, subquote, just doing his duty when he stepped in to help the youngster who went to meet his girlfriend near a local temple. The sub-inspector acted as a human shield when a ferocious mob began to beat and heckle the young man. Gagandeep told Indian media, subquote, I was just doing my duty. I couldn't have allowed the angry crowd to harm the youth. It would have weighed heavily on my conscience throughout the rest of my life had anything happened to him. And it's really, like, it's cool. I mean, you watch it, it's a bit scary because you have this massive mob against one police officer and one kid. But he basically just grabs the kid in a bear hug and turns his body so that the people are hitting him as opposed to hitting the child until they eventually back off. Uh, so that's awesome. I mean, that's how police are supposed to act. So kudos to that particular guy. All right. So that's the criminal justice news for this past week. Let's go ahead and dive into our Law 140 uh, with a brief overview on negligence and fault and damages and all that other fun stuff. Now, I want to specify from the outset that I am somewhat hesitant to touch upon this particular topic uh, because I am not a injury attorney. I don't do 1983 cases and stuff like that. Uh, I know there are some listeners who are not only listeners, but patrons who do this stuff every day. And I am terrified of misstating the law. Uh, but a lot of people asked about that particular story out of Florida and I'm going to give you the story first, and then we're going to get into some of the legal stuff about it. So from the story, it says, quote, in 2014, two officers with the St. Lucie County Sheriff's Office in Florida went to Gregory Hill Jr.'s home for a noise complaint. 
Hill, a 30-year-old black man, had been blasting an expletive-laden song by Drake, according to court testimony reviewed by CNN, and an unhappy woman who heard the song called officers to complain. The two deputies, including Christopher Newman, arrived to the house and knocked on the garage door, which Hill opened. The officers exclaimed that the man had a gun, according to a lawsuit from Hill's family, and so the 30-year-old closed the door. Newman fired bullets through the closed garage door, hitting Hill once in the head and twice in the chest. Hill, a father of three, died of those injuries. The two deputies did not realize they killed Hill after shooting through the garage door and then shot tear gas canisters through windows and called the SWAT team and snipers. The family argues the tear gas destroyed most of the home. Court documents allege Hill was found dead with an unloaded handgun in his back pocket. A SWAT team first discovered that Hill was dead after using a robot to photograph the inside of the garage, the New York Times reported. Hill's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit in 2016 after a grand jury did not indict Officer Newman. The family hoped to receive compensation for their suffering and wanted a jury to determine whether any of the deceased man's rights had been violated, according to reports in the New York Times. Police claimed Hill brandished the handgun and refused to drop it when ordered. A jury just handed down its decision. It led John Phillips, the family's attorney, to issue a bold proclamation, Black Lives Don't Matter. At first, the jury gave the man's family $4. That includes one single dollar for each of Hill's three children, aged 7, 10, and 13, and one more dollar for the man's funeral expenses, NBC reported. But the jury also found that Hill, who had been drinking at the time, was 99% at fault for his own death. So that $4 was then reduced to just $0.04. Cents. So a lot of people who saw the, the tweets, the headlines, and they see this jury awarding four pennies to a family, uh, made the argument that that was super precise, picking four cents, and therefore they must have been trying to send a message. And they may have been trying to send a message, but it's not quite as as you would think it is. So let's talk a bit about the law on negligence. And I got to remind you, you can't really look at the law in isolation. The law evolves over time. So how we have gotten to where we are with certain you know, uh, principles, with certain philosophies, they're evolutionary over the course of the 200-something year of the country. So negligence is a common law doctrine. It's something that judges have developed over time by trying to decipher particular cases with particular facts. And over time, you see these trends come out together. The basic idea of negligence law is that there's a basic standard, a prevailing standard that all of us have to follow with our conduct if we're going to avoid the unreasonable risk of harm to other people. And if you violate that standard, if you deviate from uh, the standard of care is the magic language for it, and someone gets hurt because of that, you're supposed to be held responsible for the harm that's caused. So in law school, they teach you that negligence typically has four elements of what has to be met in order to have a negligence claim. It's duty, breach, causation, and damages. So the duty is, does the person, what we would call the tortfeasor, the person responsible for the injury, does that person owe a duty to their victim? So, for example, if you're driving a car, you have a duty to use due caution, to look at the road, make sure your vehicle's in working condition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That becomes the duty of care. And if you don't 
adhere to that duty. Let's say you rear-end somebody. Uh, you have caused what is called a breach. So you first establish the duty exists. Then you establish that a person has breached that particular duty. They didn't follow it. And then you look at what's called causation. And causation has two different parts. You have what is called cause and fact. Uh, sometimes they call it but for causation. So but for the tortfeasor's wrongdoing, you would not have been injured. And then the second part of causation is what's called proximate cause, which is kind of like a legal cause, if you will. Was the injury something that could be foreseeable from the particular conduct that the tortfeasor did? If it's something that can't be foreseen reasonably, then you can't recover for it. So that is the causation piece. That's element number three. And then element number four is damages. Was the victim injured in some capacity? Because if someone violates their standard of care, as long as there's no injuries, there's no liability. You can't recover any money for it. Now, with that particular court case in Florida, there are two parts of this that we're going to talk about. One is the cause in fact piece of it. And then the other one is the damages piece of it. So with respect to the cause in fact part, this but for causation, but for the defendant's acts, the plaintiff would not have been injured. The question comes up, well, what happens if the injury is partly your fault? And what you're going to find is that there's a lot of different ways to address that. So there is a particular summary by a law firm. The law firm is Matheson, Wickert, and Lehrer. I don't know if any of their people listen to this podcast, but I Googled it. And uh, their their summary is fantastic. So it comes up first. I've shamelessly used it as background for this piece of the Law 140. Uh, so if you happen to know them, use them because I trust their knowledge. Uh, so we have what is called contributory negligence. That was the original evolution of this negligence doctrine. If you contributed to your own injuries, you couldn't get a dime. If you were even 1% responsible for how you got injured then that's a wrap. So for example, going back to the car crash scenario, if you're speeding and you hit me, but I was also speeding, and therefore because of me speeding, my injuries were worse than they would have been otherwise, and a contributory negligence jurisdiction, I might not get anything at all. So you have five jurisdictions, so four states plus DC, they use what is called pure contrib. I mean, contrib is the shorthand, pure contributory negligence. Uh, you have Alabama, the District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia, and my state of North Carolina. So that's a very harsh setup. You know, if you're even 1%, the slightest bit responsible, you get nothing at all. So in contrib jurisdictions, you've had kind of an exception to that called the last clear chance doctrine. So what it says is, even if you have contributed to your own injuries, if the defendant had the last clear chance to avoid the accident, theoretically, you could still recover something. But it's still pretty harsh in the grand scheme of negligent stuff. So in response to what, are, what you would consider really unjust outcomes with accidents involving contrib cases, a lot of states started moving away from it. And they, the pendulum swung to the other extreme, what's called comparative fault. And in comparative fault jurisdictions... Each side is responsible for their own percentage of the misconduct. So if you're 75% at fault and I'm 25% at fault, you would only be on the hook for 75% of the damages. And what this means is that even if you as the plaintiff 
are 99% at fault. You've dramatically contributed to your own injuries. You can still recover that 1% of the damages that the defendant was responsible for. So there are 12 states that use pure comparative negligence. Florida is listed in the table as one of those. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But what happens in comparative fault is you have kind of the opposite form of unjust cases from the contributor jurisdictions. In contrib, you have merit-worthy plaintiffs who can't recover a dime because they were partly responsible for their injuries. In comparative, you have merit-worthy defendants getting sued with these frivolous lawsuits by plaintiffs who still want to get that 1% or whatever percentage it is. Uh, So 23 states, I'm sorry, 33 states, decided to kind of tack back to the middle with what's called a modified comparative approach. So what that means is you still have the comparative approach of it where each side is responsible for their portion of the damages unless the plaintiff's negligence, their own portion of contributing to their own injuries, reaches a certain cutoff, usually either 50 or 51%. Uh, So 33 states use modified comparative 10 of those have a 50% cutoff, and then 23 states have a 51% cutoff. So in those, if the plaintiff is less than 51% responsible for their own injuries, they can proceed. But if it tips the scale, if they're 51% responsible, they get $0 at all. Uh, So again, going back to this notion of a car accident, say you have $100,000 in total injuries. That's probably too high. Say you have $10,000 in total injuries. If you have, um, if you're 51% responsible in these 51% modified comparative jurisdictions, you get nothing. You get $0. But if you're only 49% responsible, then you would get $5,100 from the other side. So your $10,000 in damages minus the $4,900 that you yourself contributed. And of course, if you're barely responsible, say you're only 2% responsible, that means you would get $9,800 from the defendant. Your $10,000 in damages minus that 2% that you yourself contributed through your own negligence. Uh, So that covers 49 states plus D.C. South Dakota has its own weird system where they have what is called a slight slash gross comparative fault system where the plaintiff's contributory negligence has to be slight or the defendant's negligence has to be gross. It's stupid. It's difficult to understand. Uh, I actually went through some of the case law that's linked in the table and the um, statute, and I just I wanted to bang my head against the table. So just know if you're in South Dakota, y'all got some weird shit going on. Uh, so that covers kind of the fault types. And then separate from that, you have the types of damages. So the most common one that people know about is what's called compensatory or actual damages. So these are the damages that try to make the victim whole, try to put you in a position where you would have been prior to the act that triggered the particular lawsuit. So if you're in a car accident, your actual damages typically are your medical bills, the damage to your vehicle, time lost from work, all of that related stuff that if we're trying to put you back in a position where you would have been before the accident, you got to factor all of that in. And then some states have what are called treble damages, T-R-E-B-L-E, which means that whatever the amount awarded by the jury is, you multiply that by three. So that's only for certain statutes. Uh, For example, we have a statute here that prohibits unfair and deceptive trade practices. 
So if you see a company engaged in fraud and you sue them for the fraud, you tack in a claim for unfair and deceptive trade practices, any dollar amount you get would be tripled automatically. Uh, You also have what are called punitive damages, which these are damages that the jury awards because they're trying to punish the wrongdoing. So to, to highlight the distinction between compensatory versus treble or punitive damages, I'd note you don't have to pay taxes on compensatory damages because you've not actually gained anything. The compensation is just making you whole, returning you back to where you were previously. But if you get an award for treble or punitive damages, you have to pay taxes on that portion of the award because that becomes income. That's actually something you have gained from the suit. And then you have something called nominal damages. So these are damages that are typically $1, and they're used when a judge or a jury wants to recognize that a right was violated, but not a right that ends up being worth much in terms of money. So taking all this stuff together, the rules on comparative fault and the notion of nominal damages, that's how you got to this Florida situation in the Gregory Hill case. The jury, for whatever reason decided that the damages the victims had sustained were nominal. Now, I think that's crazy. The notion that a a child losing a parent is only worth a dollar or that a funeral only costs a dollar is nuts. So the jury screwed up, and I'm not disputing that piece of it. But what happened was that that becomes the message the jury wants to send. Yes, someone's rights were violated, but we're not going to give them money for it. The reduction from the dollar down to the four cents is because you had three kids plus the funeral, so a dollar, a dollar, a dollar, a dollar, that got you to the four. But then applying the comparative fault, the jury concluded that Hill was 99% responsible for his own injuries because apparently he was drunk, they claim he was belligerent, he had the gun. Uh, so you then have that 99% contrib in a comparative fault jurisdiction means the defendant is only responsible for 1% of the damages. Total damages was decided to be $4. 1% of $4 is $0.04. Cents. So I think if I were on the jury, I don't know how I would have turned out with respect to the percentage of fault, but the appropriate way to handle it would be to put a bona fide dollar value on the loss of the parent and the funeral costs, and then you apportion that. You know, If you apportion that 99 to 1, then so be it. But I wouldn't be surprised if there was some kind of issue with the jury instructions. I'm not saying there was. I don't actually know. Didn't follow the trial. But to have a situation where you award nominal damages and, in addition to that, find that someone is 99% fault at fault for their own injuries, it just doesn't make logical sense. It seems to me that something was misexplained somewhere. But I could be wrong. So we'll see what happens in that particular case. But that's the gist of it. So just know going in, the jury did not deliberately choose to give four cents to this family. They were sending a message when they only gave them a dollar. They awarded nominal damages. Uh, But it wasn't something where they busted out a calculator and said, let's give them four pennies. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, They decided each plaintiff deserved a dollar in nominal damages. And then the Florida comparative fault model kicked in that reduced that by 99% because they concluded Gregory Hill was 99% responsible for his own injuries. So I hope all that makes sense. I didn't go too deep in the weeds on it. There's a lot more involved with negligent stuff. 
Uh, frankly, torts in law school made my head hurt, so I didn't deal with that too much. I prefer the crude black and white of criminal defense work. You're either going to jail or you're not. You're going to be executed or you're not. You know, this whole squishy, what percentage of at fault were you? Uh, just doesn't sit well with me. Uh, but I hope it made sense. For those of you who are listening, who are personal injury attorneys, please forgive me if I misexplained any of it. Please feel free to tweet me, uh, treat me, tweet me corrections if I've screwed anything up. Uh, and until then, on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, who's probably asleep by now, thank all of you for listening. I appreciate it, and I hope you have a great week. We will talk to you next Monday. <laughs>